0: Hey, Chloe, what's paideia? You know what? That's a Greek word. How about we dive into that?
1: Politics, culture, faith, and so much more. This is Fact of Life with Chloe Noller and Mattingly Watson on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.
0: Welcome back to the Fact of Life today. We're so happy that you've joined us. And we're really excited about our conversation we have in store today. All about the history of education. Especially coming off of our first
2: education series episode. You know, talking about that original intent. Today, we're going to be, you know, following that timeline. We looked at the original intent, but a lot of things have happened between then and now. So we'll look at that original meaning and purpose of education and follow it along and
0: maybe understand a little bit meaning of how we got to where we are. Yeah, so good. It's so important to look back at history. I think another important thing um we already did kind of set up what education is and what it should be in the last episode, but as I was reading um for my classes this this last week in between then and now, I read a really great paragraph from a book. It's from Timothy Keller's book Every Good Endeavor. Um talking about work, but I thought this section I'm going to read a little bit here. Um, I thought it really applied to what we're talking about with education. So Tim Keller says, If we are to be God's image bearers with regard to creation, then we will carry on his pattern of work. His world is not hostile, so that it needs to be beaten down like an enemy. Rather, its potential is undeveloped, so it needs to be cultivated like a garden. We are not to relate to this world as park rangers, whose job is not to change their space, but to preserve things as they are. Nor are we to pave over the garden of the created world to make it a parking lot. We are to be gardeners who take an active stance towards their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it in order to make it most fruitful, to draw the potentialities for growth and development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind, to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food flowers, and beauty. And that is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general, and people in particular thrive and flourish. And I thought this was so beautiful, especially with uh, C.S. Lewis's quote that we mentioned last week about cultivating gardens instead of, um, or cultivating deserts instead of uh, breaking down or, or cutting down a jungle in regard to a child's mind, God has given us such abilities and um, a b- beauty in our creation, and there's so much potential in a child's mind as they're growing up to do incredible things. To use the the reason and the the thinking and and just their their intelligence for the glory of God, and so it's so important that we are cultivating. Um, Hillsdale likes to talk about a well-ordered mind, something that has been cultivated and grown into something. It's being shaped and formed. And what shapes and forms the child's mind is so important. And so that's why we're talking about education, because shaping and forming young minds is such a high task, such a you know um, an honorable thing, but must be done with such care. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important, while talking about this, to look at the history of what's come before and where it went wrong. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a quote you
2: you might hear occasionally at Hillsdale College, but it, it actually lines the ceiling of our entryway to the Heritage Room in the library at Hillsdale. Um, if you ever are at Hillsdale, the Heritage Room is a beautiful place to go check out. But the phrase is, ideas have consequences. Um, but Chloe's quote kind of reminded me of that because it reminds us of the not severity but not in like a scary sense but Mm -hmm. like in just a a the gravity the gravity that's that's the better word the gravity of education now obviously being in a higher education institute there's more self-government self-government and autonomy on the students um, in their education but education as a whole I mean there's so much gravity to it it Mm -hmm. it has consequences Mm -hmm. I loved the quote that Chloe brought out because it's just a reminder, too, to how ingrained in education, you know, the concept of faith Mm -hmm. and God Mm -hmm. and purpose is. It really has not been until recent history that the concept of faith and religion has begun to be taken out of education. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of days that, like, you know, religion has no place in education. Faith has no place in education. Quit talking about God and education. Mm -hmm. But if you, like, from the very beginning of education especially in the western tradition to even like even while America has been a country faith has been ingrained it's only mm-hmm. been recently that that concept has even come about that it wouldn't be
0: right right and just to that point of of god being the source of this and like the foundation ingrained in it um, there's a book by Mark Knoll called the scandal of the evangelical mind There's a little section here, I guess, where he's talking about God and creation and basically asks the question, like, who who is the source of all of this? Who one One of the things he says, who moment by moment sustains the natural world, the world of human interactions and the harmonies of existence? Who maintains moment by moment the connections between what is in our minds and what is in the world beyond our midst? The answer in every case is the same. God did it and God does it. God is the upholder of our mind and our, our liberal, literal being. We are only living and breathing right now because God has is, is in the act of sustaining us. And so, um, to train up a child without that foundational concept of the very knowledge of who God is and who they're literally being supported by is just setting them up for utter failure. And, it's not glorifying to God. And in fact, it's it's very dark. So let's take a trip back into history and look at education. What has it been before? And um, so like I think the best place to start as we're looking at the Western trajectory of education here uh, is the Greeks and the Romans. Um, mm-hmm. Heading all the way back, Maddie Grace asked me that question in the beginning. What is paideia? Paideia is the Greek word for education, and it means the formal education or upbringing of society, but it also had an interpretation um, relating to the concept of freedom. The Greeks were aware of the fact that education was uh, freedom, and e- they even looked down on working-class work. They they honestly believed that the best place for a human being to be was so educated that they could uh, take a step back from the real world and and contemplate the things that are higher. So this is a very interesting idea. It's very Platonist because Plato thought that everything on this earth is a shadow of what's real and what's in heaven. And so for Plato, education was this, this uh, detachment of the real world and look, or of the, of the physical world and setting your mind on the heavenly forms um, in, in heaven. And so education was the ultimate Thing Like, they they viewed education as the best thing that you could do.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think especially because education in a very surface level sense is understanding the the world around you. You can't fully understand something unless you understand its origin. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about world history is that when you look back at all of the great thinkers of time and you think, wow, like, that is a wonderful concept. They developed education or they developed philosophy, things like that. Is that when you really study them, you realize that everything that they developed and cultivated, they they learned from and based off of and studied what came before them. Mm-hmm. So even looking at the origins of, you know, that Greek and Roman education, um, I was reading an article. It was actually an Imprimis article.
0: LOL. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <well, laughs> it, <laughs> it was a 1995
2: Imprimis yeah, article um, by Robert Blackstock, but... But he talks about that the ideas of the Western tradition um, date back even, like, you know, centuries before, the thousands of years before that. And one document that he pointed out was the Code of Hammurabi. Mm. And that that is kind of where we see this developing concept of justice begin to form. Um, and then he says that these ancient Greeks and Romans picked up on this concept of justice and kind of added that into the mix with their already blooming concepts of truth and virtue. Mm-hmm. And that is whenever the whole their whole philosophy as a whole really started to form and become more whole um, and focus a little bit more on like self-governance, things like that. And then you add in that Judeo-Christian thought and doctrine. Um, and they embraced kind of they they embraced that justice and truth and virtue. And added on morality. So mm-hmm. it's cool because you look at the code of Hammurabi and it's like justice. And then Greeks and Romans come along and they they add that to truth and virtue. So you have justice, truth, and virtue. And then Judeo-Christian thought comes along and adds in that missing piece of morality that kind of ties it all together. Mm-hmm. So it's cool because yes, education does have a start, but you also see it it pulls from before and after and puts it all together.
0: Um, definitely and like even in our western heritage reader um at, at hillsdale college all freshmen are required to take western heritage and it's basically just a history of the western philo- like western philosophy isn't
2: like one of the first documents of that book the code no of it's, it's literally
0: the first document like, yeah and I, like it's mm-hmm. it, it's even before no maybe it's not i think the creation story of I, like i think the code of Hammurabi is first is it really okay it probably I'm, is i'm I, sure. sorry Dr. Berzer, forgot. Um, I don't know, I I could be wrong, I could be wrong, you never know. um, But one of the first ones also is like Genesis and the Mm -hmm. creation story. And so, yes, like, even before this, like, obviously, (laughs) there was a lot more time before this. And, you know, a lot of people debate whether or not Plato had access to the Hebrew scriptures and if he was playing off of the law of God in the Old Testament. Um, Lots of things like that. It's very interesting. But yeah, like the Greeks and Romans kind of pull from what they've seen. The Greeks have these virtues— Temperance, justice, prudence, and fortitude. fortitude. And, and these are these the basis of Greek society, and and these are the things they really value. But again, you don't see the, the fulfillment of that until you get to Jesus and um, his Sermon on the Mount and in his teachings about fulfilling the law. And it's not just about what you're doing, but it's the heart behind it. Christianity comes along, informs this idea of what education should be and basically fills them in the gaps of where Greek education, Greek and Roman education went wrong. And it's really neat to see that. And a lot of early church fathers attempt to really explain faith through like Greek philosophy and Greek thought. And it's it's very, very interesting to read what they're what they're thinking of and how they're trying to relate both of those things. Jesus is really seen as the fulfillment of everything that Platonists desire. And so we come to, after this age of the Romans and the Greeks, we kind of enter into the medieval period where we have like early church fathers developing Christian thought and we have the cathedrals and monasteries becoming centers of education where it's basically focused completely on the Bible. Mm -hmm. And they kind of discover like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and kind of develop these philosophies surrounding Christianity and combining the two or the, the, you know, the pagan philosophies with Christianity and how do you explain things Mm -hmm. and um, Lots of Latin mm-hmm. being
2: taught. Yep,
0: tons of that. But that's kind of where you get the idea of the modern university as well, because the modern university springs out of this uh, intense study of scripture. Mm-hmm. And so most universities were first founded as uh, seminaries, as theological grounds to mm-hmm. understand the the scriptures and, and and really delve deep into them, as well as law. A lot of early theologians were lawyers as well. I thought that was so interesting. Throughout the medieval period, uh, theology was seen as the crown jewel of science. So they didn't just study theology, of course. There was always a lot more going on. But within the sciences, theology was the greatest. And so you have some of the greatest theologian, theologians and philosophers to ever live, like Thomas Aquinas, John Locke, John Don Scotus. These people um, were the foundation of kind of this Western, uh, this Western education.
2: Looking at that medieval time, that's where we really first start to see the distinctness, I guess, of the liberal arts come about, you know, putting together concepts that had been there for a while, but making them more solidified, so to speak. So, you know, you have your quadrivium of arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy, combined with the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And that's pulling from these also Aristotelian philosophies where you're getting physics, metaphysics, moral philosophy, And putting all of these together and you're starting to find things, schools in like medieval university studies specifically saying these are liberal arts in whatever way that looked like. But they're looking for that well-rounded education, pulling on those philosophers of past. And of course, as Chloe pointed out, intricately building in religion to their studies. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, there was a guy named Morris in the medieval period. And there's this quote from his writings that i wanted to bring up he says the foundation the content and the perfection of all wisdom is holy scripture which has taken its origin from that unchangeable and eternal wisdom which streams from the mouth of the most high which was begotten before every other creature through the holy spirit which is a light incessantly beaming from the words of holy scripture when anything else deserves the name of wisdom it goes back in its origin to the source of the wisdom of the Church every truth which is discovered by anyone is recognized as true by the truth itself through the mediation of the truth. Every good thing which is in any way traced out is recognized and determined as good by the good itself. He's saying here, every truth is God's truth. So anything that you find in the world that is true needs to be, or that you think is true, needs to be checked against scripture as this basis of Mm-hmm. This morality, this virtue, this this law of God and how he's designed the world to work. And so everything that you're reading and discovering, and this is especially when they're trying to to relate philosophy, um, pagan philosophy to, to Christianity and how do you explain the two together and do they even mesh at all? A lot of early church fathers had a lot to say about that and very much disagreed. But what Mara says here is that, no, every truth that you find that is true is true because God's truth is true. And so, you know, you can find wisdom by comparing it to the ultimate wisdom. Anything that they're studying, whether it's logic, astronomy, you know, uh, math, or I guess arithmetic and, you know, rhetoric, like all of these things need to be aligned back into this plumb line of wisdom. And so I just thought that was a great quote. Um, It really gets at that heart of what they were dealing with right then. In the same time period, you're getting incredible scientists. And I mean, we're sweeping a really large this really large sweep of time right now we're not just saying completely just in medieval but going kind of from that you know late antiquity period to uh even even post-reformation but like you're you're getting scientists like Isaac Newton and he was a he was a devout Christian and a lot of early scientists actually who kind of gave us foundations for for a lot of the scientific uh, methods and things today were Christians And, and they were they were doing science as vocation that God had called them to and discovering how God has designed the world. And so Isaac Newton, you know, discovering the laws of gravity, everything that Newton did, he was doing because God had given him his, this gift and this desire, and he was doing that to glorify God. You know, you just see how this kind of idea of education is impacting everything in, in which people are, are discovering. And then you have the invention of the the Gutenberg uh, printing, press. printing press. And so that's you know, allowing many people to read books and be educated themselves, not just the elite of society, which had been the norm for most of time until that point. Um, and then, you know, the Reformation happens and people have the Bible in their hands and they're actually learning. And so again, here comes another, you know, discussion around education and what it means to be educated. There's a lot of discussion in this time period as as the the working class is now being educated as well. Mm-hmm. No, it's cool because I think,
2: looking back at scientists there were many of them who really did like again this concept of religion being separate from everything is such a modern concept yeah um obviously there have been people throughout time who have thought it should be separate from everything Mm -hmm. it's not like every single person always agreed but i think like galileo one of the most famous scientists of time he was a very prevalent christian and um he said that God is known by nature and his works and by doctrine and his revealed word. But no, he was a huge believer in in how science's role fit into God's creation, which is really neat. Another thing I want to point out that I've always thought interesting is how education over time has developed into a very long pursuit, I guess I should say, Um, I don't know. There might be many factors to this. I haven't researched it. It could have been because people used to live shorter lives. Who knows? But, like, our K through 12 schooling of, like, everyone does it goes from the time you're, like, 5 to 18. And then, like, if you do go to university afterwards, you're 18 years old. But back in time, like, medieval time and, like, the times around it, like Chloe said, we're sweeping a large part of history right here students went to university at like 14 or 15. Like that's when they started engaging in these deep studies. Yeah. They got their basics done and now they're really diving into those deep studies.
0: It was, yeah, it was, the, the age difference was so crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that it takes a lot longer for us to grow up in the modern age. Like we are oh, yeah. far less mature than we would be had we been, mm-hmm. you know, living then. So there's this period of this this intense love of scripture and of, of learning and you know, trying to get as well-versed in all these subjects as you can, it's it's relating religion to science and and basing all scientific discoveries off the truths found in the Bible and this concern with being correct and according to God's word in, in kind of this period. So in the second segment of the podcast, we're really going to talk about the modern period. We're going to talk about the spirit of revolution between the French and American revolutions the the bifurcation of thought that happened during that time and talk about the progressive eras and get into kind of a modern day um, quickly because that'll be our next episode but kind of finish up that last leg of history thank you so much for tuning in just a reminder you're listening to radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm and we'll be with you right after the break
1: culture, faith, and so much more. This is Fact of Life with Chloe Noller and Mattingly Watson on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.
0: Welcome back to the second segment of the Fact of Life podcast. We're glad you've joined us. We've just been talking about the history of education. We talked about the purpose of it and the importance of it. And we've talked about the Greeks, the Romans, the early church fathers, those medieval monasteries and theological seminaries and schools, and relating all of that to education. Now, in the second segment, we're getting into this bifurcation of thought that happened during the American and uh, French revolutions. Um, basically, what happened here is there's, there's two paths that begin to emerge, you see kind of in this historical um, perspective here. There's, there's these two um, ideas tradition and progress and kind of emerging in this age of revolution with the american and the french revolutions you see this the repercussions of some ideas that have been percolating i would say during the renaissance so um, part of the renaissance was really focused on this idea of humanism so this this idea of rejecting god and saying all that man needs is man like like look at us Look at this world we've created. Look at the things we're discovering about ourselves. Look at this advancements in science. No, this is all our own doing. And so we're going to look inward and we're going to reject God and not acknowledge him as creator or anything. With this idea of humanism, some people took a little bit of that and added it to Christianity and really emphasized principles like human dignity, individual freedom, and the importance of happiness, or like we talked about eudaimonia, human flourishing, um, as as a principle and maybe exclusive component of the teachings of Jesus. So, you know, they and some people took it too far to say that um, the enjoyment of life is like the only thing we should be pursuing because that's what God would want for us. But some people really just took this to be like, no, like humans have dignity and worth. We have this idea of individual freedom, and this is a good thing. And so this idea of the freedom of the individual really uh, instills itself in American and French thought. You can see this, this different, these these growing patterns, and I guess we hadn't talked about the American Revolution yet, but you know, with you have colonists going over to America, starting these universities. You have people like Jonathan Edwards and these these uh, incredible theologians of the Puritans and the people that have moved over to the United States, creating universities like uh, Yale and Harvard, and Mm -hmm. studying these these virtues and things in the university. And then you have the, the contrast between that and France, where you're having this in, very secular, very uh, godless kind of education um, in like the Sorbonne. And not to say that they left it behind completely, but, um, you know, very focused on the human person and science. And this is kind of where you get the divide between science and, and um, Christianity and reason and revelation. And, and where do the two combine? And this is kind of where you get that bifurcation of thought Um, So it's a very, very uh, volatile time in human history.
2: No, absolutely. Um, And then looking at, you know, you see a lot of times people think of liberal arts education nowadays and that kind of education that we're talking about that has that Western root. I think it's largely associated with like American liberal arts colleges, but looking at Europe, European countries actually do have a large liberal liberal arts root in them. And you can see, like Chloe said, countries like France, who when the object of like humanism comes up, there's a large like bifurcation there of the direction we choose to take with that. Um, But it is interesting looking at, you know, a liberal arts education in Europe because even like countries like germany and austria they had education influenced by this um i'm not going to try to say the word because i just can't pronounce it (laughs) it's i'm not even going to try it would just be embarrassing but and they they even started integrating that into like their grammar schools in their Mm -hmm. high schools Mm -hmm. you see that start to come to help prepare them for that higher um more comprehensive education as they would say with you know scholastic thinking um and in Europe, that was really
0: began to be reshaped by the Enlightenment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I know. And I think that's important, too, because when you're looking at the founding fathers of America, they were some of the best educated minds ever to have existed. I mean, these were incredible people who took such a synthesis of ideas. I mean, literally a comprehensive s- synthesis of, of political government ideas throughout the entire world to create the American government. I mean, the amount of education that these guys had and the level of emphasis they put on creating a a, a more perfect union than had ever existed before. Um, But you you look at their thought and and they're drawing from their predecessors like John Locke, Montesquieu, Aristotle, Socrates. Mm -hmm. They're looking at the successes and failures within the Grecian and Roman empires. They're setting up a government... That's strong enough to protect humans from inherent nature because they still believe in the fact that humans are fallible, and uh, but not so powerful as to infringe upon the freedom and rights of the individual. That's stemming mm-hmm. from that Christian humanistic idea, um, and, and they're so like the ancient Greeks who distrusted human nature. They're developing a governing body not for angels but for men. That's from mm-hmm. Federalist fifty one. Um, but conversely, the French Revolution was based on ideas on progress. They had no real, uh, you know, founder. I mean, there, there were a lot of people that led it for sure. But um, these ideas f- stemming from like Voltaire and Robespierre who are, you know, growing these secularist movements and proclaiming other ideas. They're saying, no, like man's per- perfectible. Uh, we can create utopia here on Earth. Human nature is inherently good. We're all good, man. We can do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And there's no repercussions from that. And so they're trying to disillusion people and correct the distrust of human nature. And they're trying to reinvent justice. Whenever you see this idea of reinvention or rethinking Mm -hmm. or this... Just be wary of that. Look back at what they're reinventing. What are they and why yeah, they are? No, exactly, and why? And maybe you should rethink their rethinking. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, it's
2: interesting looking at the French too. Um, a lot of people like to compare, like the French Revolution with the American Revolution, all of those kind of things. Lots of comparisons between the French and mm-hmm. the American. I mean, rightly so. Rightly so. Yeah. Um, but like Chloe said, they're so focused on progress, it was like they started building a building without the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Yep truly what it was but this fluid principle mm-hmm. yeah and in a lot of ways once we start to see education in america you know like chloe said yale and harvard and some of those first higher education institutions established in america you see an attempt to kind of go back to the origin of liberal arts go back to the origin of education in the western tradition because um whenever you see education in Europe hit the Enlightenment, they start to lose some of that focus on like scholastic thinking and like, a so- like the Socratic method and things like that. Um, they get the idea that, oh, you know, students in grammar school, students in high school, they got this well-rounded education. So now they don't need to do that in higher education. And I think a lot of times that is where even nowadays people get mixed up on that fact because they're like, oh, students learned math and English and science and reading and all of these things in grammar school, in high school. They don't need to do that in high school. Sorry, they don't need to do that in college anymore. So you see planting colleges and universities coming into America. Um, I th- Even the first, um, the first Co- college the first institution of higher education in America was Harvard College mm-hmm. 1636 it was established in Massachusetts where it still resides but looking at you know its original charter which i always love looking at original charters of colleges especially mm-hmm. after um working in admissions at still here now because one of the things Hillsdale is big on is sticking to its original charter. You know, Mm -hmm. I talk about it all the time. So now I just love looking at college's original charters. The first phrase of the Harvard College Charter of 1650 literally says, whereas through the good hand of God, and then continues on with its charter. But you can see from the beginning, even in America, even in these institutions that are basically considered to have left all notion of religion and all of those things now... Um, maybe not even liberal arts institutions anymore at their core. In the beginning, they were founded to go back to that original root. That Mm -hmm. was their purpose. So just one thing I appreciate a lot about Hillsdale Mm -hmm. is because the extreme intentionality of staying true to our charter, staying true to our roots and our principles that our Mm -hmm. college was founded on. But it's just interesting looking back at these institutions because even when America first started, what, 250 years ago, Mm -hmm. This was our intent.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's also interesting to think about like college admissions then because like for founding fathers, you know, in their time and and just kind of anyone wishing to get into education, there was an entrance ex- entrance exam. And you, I mean, for Hillsdale, I know anyways, uh, but this was similar with a lot of universities. For Hillsdale's beginning, their like original mm. classes had to translate a passage from John or was it the whole book of John? It might've been the whole book of John. I think it was the whole book of John from uh, uh, Greek to Latin to English. So like literally they had to have a comprehensive understanding of Latin and Greek and English and to translate all that that's part of the entrance exam to even get into college. What do you learn at college if you already, I'm kidding. As someone in Greek right now, I, I, I don't even know how they do that. Well, I guess I do. If you just start from an early age, maybe that's the key. Classical education, starting from an early age, learning Latin and Greek. Oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> but anyways, looking at that um, bifurcation of thought, it's just interesting to see the results in these revolutions. You know, the American Revolution creates a new nation based on freedom and and God and morality. And you have this other nation that continues to go through chaos even after the, the end of the revolution, which I can't even pinpoint truly, like where this ended and and where they just went on with their government because there was a continual time of revolution, or revolution. This resulted in the death of over 40,000 innocent people who were guillotined to death for frivolous and untrue accusations. So, you know, if their justice was founded upon a, a sense of like what we would call today social justice, meaning that anyone could be found guilty of anything that went against the current narrative. There were so many different shifting narratives in the revolution. So, um, I just think it's very interesting. Uh, when you look at the beginning of America, yeah, almost all American universities were founded for the purpose of training pastors, for evangelists, for theologians. You have so many, especially in the beginning of America, the first and second great awakenings, uh, people are really focused on this idea of of Christianity and being true to Scripture um, no matter what you're doing. And so then, you know, that's going to stimulate further education. And so inventions and scientific discoveries really prepare propelled America into the industrial age. So this creates a prosperous middle class and a raised standard of living for the masses. And so this is a time of wealth and prosperity following the Civil War. A new school of thought begins to emerge here. Um, this is the beginnings of the progressive movement. And, and I will say, I mean, there, there's roots that go back pretty far. And you can even trace some of the progressive roots to the French Revolution, of course, because um, it was all based on progress. But kind of seeing it in America, you see a couple people start, you know, writing treatises on, on progressive ideas. And you're like, oh, no, this is this is not good. But they start to leave behind because of this prosperity. They, they start to get this idea in their head that, oh look at us in America we're, we're doing pretty good for ourselves like we've created this incredible society people have a raised standard of living we're doing great we're progressing I would I would say we're progressing so maybe we should rethink our style of government and so this this, this progressive thought kind of um, because of you know many of the difficulties that humans faced they're now suddenly irrelevant now they have more time mm-hmm. on their hands to think about things and this suddenly starts to appear mm-hmm I was reading an article um, from
2: Will Catterberg. It's titled The Liberal Arts, Present, Past, and Future. But it really kind of goes across how education started fraying from the liberal arts mm-hmm. um, and how these different branches have come off. And one thing I thought was really interesting that he pointed out um, going into like the 20th century he said, and this is a direct quote, colleges and universities tried to balance major concentrations in modern disciplines, um, electives and core gradebooks. general education requirements. You know, a lot of schools still have gen eds, even if they're not a liberal arts school. But he said in recent decades, interdisciplinary fields such as international development and gender, African-American and environmental studies became part of the mix. With a motives that lean toward the practical as much as the purest, and this is this is the part that really got me. He said, "The point was not to study the world, but to change it." Mm-hmm. Which, it's interesting because, in order in, in the attempt to quote unquote change the world or progress, as Chloe is saying, it's not. Maybe the original intent is to add changing to studying, but by adding this this changing or whatever they're trying to do here, they're taking away studying the world. Instead, the focus isn't understanding the world around you, but it's changing the world around you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you really fully know, can you really change something when you don't, or should you really change something when you don't fully understand it? Because if you don't fully understand
0: it, how do you know it should be changed? Exactly. exactly. And that is the that is the problem with education today. And I love something Dr. Arne says to every freshman class ever. He's like, and he even says this to to every student on Hillsdale, like at every lecture he does with students, is like, you guys don't know anything yet. Like he hates that students are involved in politics because he says, we don't know anything yet. And I'm like, you're so right. I don't know anything. Um, but like, it's it's true. Like we we can't understand how to change or how to um, conserve. Like the conservative movement was built out of um, an idea from Russell Kirk saying, no, let's go back and conserve what was been before. And so this idea of like change to me, like to change the world means to go back to what we were, uh, to go back to some of these ideas, these, these foundations and morals and traditions that. Our country held so dear and the people of the United States held so dear. Um, But so you get this idea, right, this idea of social change. And right, as you're saying, like, if you don't even understand where you've come from, how do you know where you're to progress towards? Mm -hmm. And so um, you start getting this infiltration of education. And uh, especially in the beginning of the 1900s. So you get several progressive presidents in the presidency, like Woodrow Wilson, who was a blatant progressive. was wild. Um, That man had crazy ideas. Um, But I mean, there's some of them were good presidents. I wouldn't say Woodrow Wilson was, but some really good presidents in that time, but also that were really progressive. And so I don't know how good they were, I guess. But something that the progressives tried to do was they realized that education, if it were devoted to God, meant that they could never change anything because it's an unchanging ideal. Like God's law, what he set out in scripture is unchanging. And they said, "No, we want to change that. We don't want it to be we don't want this to be the foundation of education anymore because we have no control over it." And so what they did was they compared uh and and related American patriotism to God. And and they made this two kind of equal. And and are saying like it's your duty to like to serve God through serving the country and like this is a time during World War II, right? World War I and Two, where patriotism was a good thing for for america to to bond together to to come together to defeat the evil um and i think because of this this radical like we need to defeat the germans we need to defeat the soviets we need to get um protect life and join together like this is a very righteous cause and so there's this combining of you know that that righteous cause of of the world wars and kind of christianity and like what what are you doing here and so like patriotism was was kind of taught as number one in schools you start kind of seeing this like sly leaving behind of these principles and what they were doing was if we can get education now based on sort of like this american patriotism like yes america is everything we love america like this is where you get the pledge of allegiance believe it or not president eisenhower not a bad man at all but like he get this pledge of allegiance like under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all um they're saying if we can get this this idea of America underneath the foundation of education, then we can change it. We can exploit it when we want to burn America to the ground. And lo and behold, that's what happens. They start to kind of take this foundation of education built on America and start to change it and say, do you really love America? Do you really love everything that's going on in the nation? I don't think you do. And, and so now you get this idea of social justice. And America as being a um, a systematic a systematic a systematized racist country and um, white supremacy and things like that. That's where you get this modern shift, this modern straying um, of education. And that's, I mean, really where things went all wrong. I mm-hmm. think. Um, I mean, there was there were some other things that that happened, but the main catalyst of the wrecking the wreckage of education was during this movement.
2: Mm-hmm. And it really just all goes back to the fact of. People trying to change something that they don't fully understand mm-hmm. because they start to think, okay, well, maybe I don't need this education to fully understand the world around me. Mm-hmm. And they sneak into that and they start to think, oh, I want to change this when they they really don't fully understand it. And so now we have people trying to convince the rest of the population to change something that not only they don't understand, but now because of how they've affected education the population doesn't understand either.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a blind leading the blind sort right. of scenario. Well, John Dewey, who was a major proponent of this catalyst, he said once, you cannot teach today the same way you did yesterday to prepare students for tomorrow. What? <laughs> you cannot teach today the same way you did yesterday to prepare students for tomorrow. No, <laughs> not at all. I would say you can't teach... Now we're gonna kind of going over. Um, you can't teach a student about tomorrow if you don't come from yesterday. This is this this is this terrible idea which wrecks education and trans, transitions us into the modern day. Mm-hmm. So on, on our next episode of the podcast, I'm going to say that better. So this is the catalyst that transitions education from a morally based education into the, the, what we see today, into the wreckage of education the wreckage of our nation, and the struggles that we're facing as a nation. This is that transition period. In our next episode of the podcast, we're really going to delve into that modern period. We're going to talk about what is going on today. What are the issues and what's at stake? And why is it important that we get a hold of this for the future of America? As always, we're Chloe Noller and Mattingly
2: Watson, and and this this is Fact of Life. Life.
1: The Fact of Life podcast can be found at at factoflifepodcast on Instagram or at factoflifepod on Twitter. Reach out to the host at factoflifepodcast at gmail.com or send a message on Instagram or Twitter. Listen to The Fact of Life anywhere you get your podcasts, especially right here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on The Fact of Life.